Hello, welcome to Desert Island Books, a podcast about reading. I'm your host and resident librarian, Natalie Mason, from the City of Melbourne Libraries. Joining me is a very special guest who will share their top three all-time favourite books. Santilla Chingape is an award-winning journalist and filmmaker. She spent nearly a decade working for SBS World News, which saw her report from across Africa and interview some of the continent's most prominent leaders and also report exclusively on Australia's diverse African communities. Santilla created and hosted the Africa Talk series in partnership with the Wheeler Centre in Melbourne, which explored perceptions about African-Australian identity, representation and politics. She partnered with the Wheeler Centre again to curate Australia's first all-day anti-racism festival, Not Racist But, which is currently in its second season. Her film credits include the landmark SBS documentary Date My Race. She wrote and directed Black As Me and her latest documentary series Third Culture Kids is currently streaming on ABC's iView. She was awarded a State Library of Victoria Fellowship to research African migration to Australia pre-Federation. She reports regularly for the Saturday paper and is a member of the federal government's advisory group on Australia-Africa relations. And recently, and very excitingly, Santilla was named one of 2019's most influential people of African descent in the media and culture category and was named that by the United Nations. Please lean in, please lean in, and welcome to your desert island, Santilla. Thank you. <laughs> so are you exhausted? You're very busy. Uh but it's all good though. Like you know, you you spend so many, so many years working hard, and you don't quite see the fruits of your labour. Yeah. Um, and then you wake up one day and you're like, oh, actually, I I have been doing stuff, and um, hopefully it's you know meaningful stuff and you know work that's contributing to something. But um, so far it's been going very well, so I'm feeling very. Very, very fortunate at the moment. I think if it's meaningful to you, then you have that ability to make it meaningful for other people as well. Here's hoping. I mean, I whenever I create work, um, you, the genesis always is, it, it's always born out of curiosity. So it's always like, what am, what, I'll either hear something or I'll read something or I'll listen to something or I'll see something. And then I'll, I'll be like, hmm, that's interesting. And if it hangs around long enough and I go home and I start Googling and then I can't sleep and my mind's just racing, then I'm like, okay, there's clearly something here. And then I'll look to see what else is around that explores that. And if I feel like there's nothing that quite sort of satisfies that curiosity, that then begins that exploration for me. And then I'm like, okay, what can I do? Do I have to write about it? Do I have to... Should I make a film about it? If I make a film, what kind of film am I making about it? Is it a series? Is it uh, a short? Is it like what? What? What is it? And then that then sort of begins the journey um, of 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 stories. Mm. Um, so but it, yeah, it's those ideas that stick that compel us to dig further into them, and the ideas that pop up and float away are the ones that clearly don't don't rate that attention. Yeah, and it's also again like if I like I said if I if I find something that kind of satisfies that curiosity in the process of researching, then I'll be like, okay, cool. I don't have to I don't have to look further. There's there's something already there. But if I feel like there's nothing that's quite speaking to me, mm. and everything that I've ever made or everything that I that I that I seek to create is really in a weird way quite selfish because I'm I'm thinking about what I like and I. And that's what I'm trying to make. I'm I'm am generally trying to make things that 
I feel like I I want but aren't there. And if that resonates with other people, then that's just such a wonderful bonus on top of the process of actually being able to tell those stories. But generally it comes from a place of I don't feel like I'm being my needs are being met mm. with certain stories. And if I have the opportunity to tell those stories, then I will. Um, but, yeah. I think it's okay if you're your own audience. <laughs> when you embark on a project. Yeah, but I like weird stuff as well. And half the time I'm like, mm, maybe we shouldn't make that sandy. <laughs> but this is how we find our people. Right. We put stuff into no, the no, world. No, no, no. Some of it is a bit like, mm, yeah, we shouldn't put it out in the world. Maybe Let's there's some people you don't want to meet. <laughs> fair, yes. fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's dive into this bookshelf of um, books we're taking with you to your. Uh, we are on your desert. I'm not sure where are we? we are. Let's okay. just go with this theme. Yeah. Um, of books and reading. And so, could you please reveal the title and author of book one? Okay. That's a drum roll. Oh. <laughs> the distant, distant headphones drum roll. Look, um, someone on the island was playing the drums. Um, first book for me is Things Fall Apart by uh, a great uh, African author, well, Nigerian, rather, Chinua Achebe. Um, and I think he wrote this in the late 50s. 1958. Yeah, you got it. Um, yeah, should I reveal the second one or should we? No, let's delve into this okay. one. Tell me how you cho- came to choose so it. So I came to choose it. It was, you know, it was one, it was really hard picking three books. I'm sorry about that. Seriously, I mean... You just made my life so much harder. And also I felt really bad about all the other books on my bookshelf. Um, my bookshelf's overflowing at the moment that I now put books on the floor and I just stack them. Um, but I don't read a lot of fiction. I read a lot of nonfiction, a lot of it because of my work. Uh, a lot of it is, um, yeah, it's it's always related to work. And so I, I very rarely read for pleasure. And I always associate fiction re- reading with pleasure. And that tells you how long it's been since I've actually enjoyed reading a really, really, really good book. And, um, you know, school was a wonderful place to read fiction because part of, you know, the curriculum is that you're forced to read things. But also I think it was a place, I mean, I loved books when I was a, when I was a kid. Um, I was bullied a lot. And I know. <laughs> I didn't did have I, any friends. What's the look on my – describe the look on my face. You I just want to reach really out and hug you. And you. You do want to hug me. Um, I can feel it. Don't worry. Mm-hmm. Thank okay. you. Um, but I – yeah, I, I, so I didn't, I, I didn't really have a lot of friends. Um, and uh, part of build, finding a little sanctuary for myself was I used to read in a little school library at my kindergarten. That's what I used to do. And – I can't remember the book. I was trying to ask my mum the other day. There were these, were they the Ladybird series? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I yep. think, so I remember reading all of those books in the little kindergarten library that I went to. This was in Zambia because I grew up in Zambia up until I was nine. And um, my the school gave me a book when I graduated kindergarten that was to s- sort of say that I'd finished all the books in the l- school library and no one had done in the kindergarten library and no one had done it before and it was these ladybird books and my parents were very big on reading we never really got presents as, you know in birthdays and things like that we've got a lot of books and reading was just what we did and it was very much encouraged I had my own little library in in um my parents house there, there was a part of the bookshelf that my dad let me sort of just make into my own little library. And I I remember this was, again, 90s, 
um, back when you would check in books at the library, you got a little card, the yep. front of the of the of the of the book. Yes. And I remember making that little pocket for every single one of my books, and I would check in every person that would borrow my book. <laughs> I would give it to them. Oh my true god! Story. You ran your own library. I did. This is I very true inspiring. story. I was very. I just love because books for me because you know like I said I was bullied and I didn't really have I didn't really have a lot of friends um, even when I went to primary school um, I yeah I found a lot of solace in just reading and and that became my thing and um, and when I when I when I didn't have the stories when I couldn't find the stories that I wanted I would write stories. So I remember writing plays and a lot of them were sort of like, because I, I went through a phase in my tweens of Mills and Boone books. <laughs> Classic. writing like these romance sort of situations and, you know, I cringe now, but bless, it was it was a good time. But um, with Things Fall Apart, it came when, so when I was uh, 14, my family moved back to Zambia and I was sort of briefly in school there for about a year, I think. And then I was homeschooled uh, until I finished high school. But when I was briefly back at school, um, I was exposed to uh, so-called African literature. Um, and the reason why I say, you know, why African literature for me is in inverted commas is, is, is what is African literature? Do you know what I mean? Like it's it's a very diverse continent and the stories are very, very diverse in themselves and I don't think there is any one banner that you can put those those stories in. I don't think anyone would say European literature. They no. They would say French literature exactly. or and German literature. Exactly. And, and so that's not applied in the same way. No, it's not. And that is part of... Um, you know, colonialism, racism, all, all all those other things. But um, but Chinua Achebe was probably the f- the foremost author that you read when you started that journey of reading books written by African writers, um, people from the continent. And I remember reading Things Fall Apart first, going, "What is this book?" Two, I'd never read a book that was set in a rural world. I'd never read a book. I, I mean, I'd, I'd been reading contemporary books by African writers at that point, but all of them were sort of urban based and I hadn't really read any so that was sort of based in a village. And so I'd sort of heard, I, 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 I knew the village as this mythical place that I'd heard about on television and when people would, would talk about this place called Africa and like this village. And I'm like, I don't quite know what this village is, but I guess there is a village because even when we would visit um, relatives out in regional towns and stuff, they never looked like the villages that people would talk about. Like there were no huts. There were no people walking around naked. Like it wasn't <laughs> any of that. So when I was reading this book, I was like, oh, okay. So the, these, these, these places kind of existed. Um, but in this particular context, this is, this book is set in Nigeria. Um, and it was sort of towards the beginning of colonialism when where, where this book is set. And what I also loved about it at the time that I recall was I loved that they spoke in uh, Proverbs a lot, which was something that I grew up with. And I always thought that it was just my family being weird because my mother would always like pepper conversation sentences with with proverbs and stuff. And it was it would either be in her language or it would be in English. Um, and even when I was in school, yeah, you know, I'd have like a teacher saying, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. And it was just always like this constant hammering of these 
Proverbs. And I was like, when I read the book, I was like, oh, this is not a weird thing that I'm accustomed to. This, this, this is, this is, this is clearly part of, um, uh, part of how people communicate in, 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 in other, in other African um, ethnic groups. And that was, that, that was, that was wonderful in a way because you, 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 you know, I think you said this earlier, it might have, might have been before we started the recording, but it's this idea that like when stories, you know, you, you sometimes feel like you're by yourself or, or you're the only person experiencing something and then you read a book and you go, oh, right, I'm not weird after all. Like there's someone else that's thinking this or someone else that's experiencing this. And that was what reading Things Fall Apart kind of did for me in, in many ways, but also opened me up to thinking about what it was to be an African. Uh, I don't think I'd thought about it as deeply at that point. I think I had known that I was Zambian. I'd known that I'd come from, I was very much, I grew up associated with my ethnic groups. So, you know, my dad's ethnic group and my mum's ethnic group. And within, within those ethnic groups, there's rich cultures and all this sort of stuff. So I grew up understanding my African identity within that lens. And I knew that I was part of this bigger continent that everyone talked about, but I, you know, knew very little about Nigeria. Um, and I knew very little about the Igbo people who um, who who are centred in, in, in Things Fall Apart. So that in itself was really wonderful in opening up my own, uh, in many ways, Western-conditioned views of Africa, African people, and recognising that the the same way that I saw the diversity within my own ethnic groups that, that, that I belong to um, were equally pronounced in other ethnic groups. And there was something quite magical about discovering um, discovering that through 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 this book. And do you have a favourite part that you wanted to read? Um, I've got a lot of favourite parts, but I was going to read... This is underlined. Is this a book that you've had for very long? I can see that it's, it's literally falling apart. Yeah, it is very literally for, falling apart. I've had it since it I was like 15. So this 15. was your... Did you study it at school? Was I it did. something you had to examine I did. We, and We had to study it about? in Zambia. I honestly can't remember because it's so long ago now, but it was definitely one of um, one of the books in the curriculum along with other books like Mind Boy. Um, yeah, but we had to we had to read there's a there's a passage that I'm looking for, I'm trying to figure out where it is. And there's one that I really like, but I don't want to give away the the way the book progresses, which is why I wanna go early on. Um and I think I'm gonna read from chapter four and the reason why I'm going to read from here is um when I remember reading the book so the so the book is about this protagonist called Okonkwo and he was born in poverty and he um worked really really hard to create wealth and he became a very respected elder in in his village and a series of unfortunate events lead him to be uh sort of Outcast, outcast from yeah. from from the community for a number of years because he has to atone for 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 what he does and um and then you know the interactions with the early uh, early colonizers begins and 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 that in itself is also quite interesting but i w- but what i loved about there was a moment when i remember when i was reading it when i was a teenager and i remember when i had to 
when I was revisiting it for this podcast, I was like, oh, I remember that because I really loved that part of the, about the book. And it was his relationship with um, a boy named Ikemefuna. I have to always remember his pronunciation. Um, Ikemefuna, and he is someone who, how much can I tell of Go that? Go for it. I don't really want to ruin it for people that have. Uh, well, Ikemefuma comes to. So he comes to the, the, village the village for a specific for reason. For a specific reason, absolutely. And for a specific time and frame. And for, for a specific time frame. And Okonkwo is a very – he's a hard-hearted man. Like, I mean, you get, you get moments when you, when, you, when you recognize that he is quite – you almost empathize with him and you empathize with, with, with why he is the way he is. And you can see moments of just compassion trying to creep in. <laughs> He does try so hard. And he does. And I think with, with, with this particular chapter, what I love about it is that you just get a tiny, tiny, tiny moment where you get to feel the humanity in him, yes. which I don't think you get to see again. And it's because of his relationship no. with Ikemefuna. And it, that's, it hardens after the Yeah. Again. Yeah. Okay. So how much should I read? As much as you like. The elders of the clan had decided that Ikemefuna should be in Okwonko's care for a while but no one thought it would be as long as three years. They seemed to forget all about him as soon as they had taken the decision. At first, Ikemefuna was very much afraid. Once or twice, he tried to run away, but he, but he did not know where to begin. He thought of his mother and his three-year-old sister and wept bitterly. Nwoye's mother was very kind to him and treated him as one of her own children. But all he said was, "'When shall I go home?' When Okonkwo heard that he would not eat any food, he came into the hut with a big stick in his hand and stood over him while he swallowed his yams, trembling. A few moments later, he went behind the hut and began to vomit painfully. Nwoye's mother went to him and placed her hands on his chest and on his back. He was ill for three market weeks, and when he recovered, he seemed to overcome his great fear and sadness. He was by nature a very lively boy, and he gradually became popular in Okonkwo's household, especially with the children. Okonkwo's son, Nwoye, who was two years younger, became quite inseparable from him because he seemed to know everything. He could fashion out flutes from bamboo stems and even from elephant grass. He knew the names of all the birds and could set clever traps for the little bush rodents, and he knew which trees made the strongest bows. Even Okonkwo himself became very fond of the boy, inwardly, of course. Okonkwo never showed any emotion openly, unless it be the emotion of anger. To show affection was a sign of weakness. The only thing worth demonstrating was strength. He therefore treated Ikemefuna as he treated everybody else, with a heavy hand. But there was no doubt that he liked the boy. Sometimes, when he went to big village meetings or communal ancestral feasts, he allowed Ikemefuna to accompany him, like a son, carrying his stool and his goatskin bag. And indeed, Ikemefuna called him father. I'll leave it there. Yeah. I could keep going. But... No, and you should one day audio book. I think you could make one for us. Mm. Um, the, the tenderness there is on show for us mm. as readers. So mm. we get these glimpses I mean, we get told the whole story mm. and, you know, trauma can sometimes beget trauma and can sometimes Absolutely. harden us. Mm. Um, and then we we become full of resentment and, 
you know, there's a parable in there about what begets what, mm. and I think this book does that incredibly well mm. um, about how we we build on choices that we make and mm. our fate sometimes is predetermined mm. because mm. of the way we look towards our future. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wanted to talk about the ending, but I just don't know how to talk about it mm. without massively spoiling it. But for me, the ending turned the whole book on its head. Mm. Do you have feelings about the ending? As in what happens to a conqueror? As in even beyond that, mm. about how it's perceived by the kind of colonial district commissioner who re- kind of reflects on what is a very full and rich life. And it just becomes two lines. So reductive. Yeah. But, but that is what Chinua Cheba did really well. I mean, was he, I mean, have you read his essay where he critiques um, Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness? It's almost as though these days you cannot read Heart of Darkness without reading Chinua Cheba's essay critiquing that book. And for good reason. I think he was, I mean, in a way in which he was able to articulate um, how Europeans, how the West have not just colonised Africa, but also in many ways sought to erase erase um, African cultures, histories, um you know, economic systems, all, all these sorts of things. And and the the way in which they interpreted through that Western lens is through a very hierarchical kind of perspective. And and he was very, very good at critiquing that and really holding holding the West to account when it came to um, talking about Africa, writing about Africa. Um, and it, it, it wasn't surprising that that was where the book ended knowing how Chinua Achebe wrote after Things Fell Apart came out. Um, but it was absolutely sad in many ways. But it's almost as though that narrative is still continuing. That's part of the sadness of the ending. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like it could almost, it, you know, this book was set at a certain particular point in history, but it could very well be 2019, you know. Yeah, reading reading this book now through a feminist lens, there is quite a lot that you kind of go, you know, but at the same time as a creative, you sort of kind of want people to have the licence to create the worlds and characters they want to create and, and, and push up the boundaries. But the thing that I've, I that really struck me with Okonkwo's character is that I know a lot of men in my life like that. You know, I know a lot of men who, um, in my family, who um, came from poverty and worked really, really, really hard to make something of their lives because they had very little to start off with. And there was pride in that. But then there was also pride in strength and the idea that you can show weakness and vulnerability and all these sorts of things. And this isn't just immune to African context. It's obviously something that we're also reckoning with in this country as well in terms of in terms of masculinity and the limitations that we've imposed on masculinity and, and, and what is it to be a man and what is it to express that. And I find that... I think that's probably one of the biggest tragedies that I think the book, for me, really lets, forces me to reflect on outside of uh, the cultural stuff and, and, and all that sort of stuff. It really is about um, those limitations of masculinity and how they show up in various cultures. You know, in this context, it was in the Igbo cu- culture. Because, again, th- what the book does quite well for me is that it sets it sets up 
Okonkwo's motivations quite clearly and and he's not an easy man to love or like. Mm. <laughs> or read about sometimes. Or read about, you know. But you kind of get to a point where you're like, I, I, get, I get why you're like this. Don't agree with it, but I get why you're like this, you know. Shall we reflect on a completely different man? Yeah. <laughs> Would you please reveal the title and author of book two? Mm, drum roll. Book two. This was a really hard one. Uh, Teju Cole, um, and the book is called Open City. And I love this book. You have no – actually, I love Teju uh, a lot. Does he <laughs> love you too? I, I think so, actually. Have I, you met him? I, I have, um, and uh, we, we, we are friends um, and we exchange emails and stuff. Um, but I was obsessed with him before I got to know him. Uh, I'd read Open City and it was unlike anything I'd ever read before in my life. I was like, what is this? And it's been, I've read all of his other stuff and I, I love a lot of his nonfiction because I think his critiquing mm. is spot on. If anything, he's probably the, He's single-handedly been the person who has influenced my career significantly, as in he has really challenged my ways of thinking, of seeing, um, and pushed me to places that even I didn't know that I could I could go with my with my storytelling. Um, and Open City was sort of the the foundation for that because I remember reading it going what is this book because it doesn't follow like a linear sort of um, path of storytelling and you know he starts off somewhere then he wanders off somewhere and you're kind of going what's going on and I remember reading it and getting halfway into the book and going has has it has do I get it now like I was really trying to make sense of what I was reading and then you then realize no 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 that is actually what the book is and so it's really about the the protagonist's name is Julius and I can't remember what I haven't read in years but is he in his 30s mid 30s yep he's studying and in in New York I think he's in his last year of like his psychiatry yep degree or Whatever it is that he's studying. His residency. He's his doing residency, his residency, residency and in right. his final year. You're right. absolutely right. And he um, is mixed race. So I think his father's Nigerian and he his mum is white. I think she's from German. German, yep. yeah. And he grew up in Nigeria, mm-hmm. moved to almost similar to Teju's life as well, where he, because he, he was born in America but then grew up in Nigeria then moved back to America. Um, and he is kind of wandering through New York City um, and having encounters with people, making observations, but then he's also traveling around the world. And in in those observations, he makes Julius, Julius's character makes commentary around issues to do with migration. Uh, There's a bit about assimilation in religion, there. Religion, um, globalization, borders, pretty much everything that we that's kind of in the zeitgeist at the moment, lands in the book, including, oddly enough, uh, a really interesting bit when you think about the Me Too movement now with, was it Mojo? 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 The female character who had a crush on him um, and I think it was in Nigeria. I don't know if they dated or whatever. And then towards the end... 
of the book. Does she show up in a grocery store? She yeah, follows him and up she's and like, down and she's like, you know, you. I remember. Do you remember me? And he's like, I don't. He struggles and he's so like, much. And he says something along the lines of like, you look like someone who, he's he, like, who who would ha- I have I would have a crush on or something. Who would have had a crush on me or something? Yeah, I don't know if he says that to her, but he reflects to himself. I think maybe she remembers me because she would have had it. Because she was the younger sister of a dear friend of his from Mm. high school, I think. Yeah. What ended up being. Yeah. And then they, and then she drops a rape bomb. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which was interesting. Um, So yeah, so there's that. And then there's, there's stuff to do with the Middle East and Palestine. Yeah. There's, he goes to Belgium. Yeah, lives in Brussels for a while. And there's a on the plane the observations that he makes. What that book did to me, one, it opened up the world. Like it opened up New York, and New York's a very difficult city to write about because a lot of people have written about New York, Um, and he does it quite well. But the music, Mm -hmm. he got me. He he got me into Marla. Like I was never got me into him, and I'm now fully, fully, fully obsessed. There was a, I can't remember where in the book, but he was so descriptive that you just kind of go, I really want to hear this now. Yeah. I really, really want to hear this. Um, but what I liked about the book, aside from the writing, because I think Teju is just a brilliant writer and his ways of thinking. I mean, there were moments that are, from memory, were quite frustrating because, because they're almost like, for lack of a better term, almost like vignettes of the moments that he has. Yeah. Sometimes you want them to go for a little bit longer and then, you, you know, they never do and then you just go on to something else um, and he never really quite revisits them at all. So that's probably part of the frustration and you almost wonder what is he saying to you as the, you know, as the person that's reading this, you know, is, it, is he leaving you to make the interpretation yourself because he's too scared to sort of um, really, really, really form a position on something? But what I liked about it was up until that point, I couldn't quite understand why I thought about things a certain way. So I never really, like, even when I would be, even when I was working as a journalist in a newsroom, right, like I would be, I'd be assigned a story. And I was, the only way I can describe it is like an octopus, right? So I'd have like eight different things going on. And I'd be like, okay, that's there, that's there, that's there, that's there, that's there. And this is what we're trying to say that's right in the middle, right? And I know that this and this and this and this and this and this bring us back to this. But news is so limiting because you only have, you know, in television you've got a minute and a half uh, on a good day and if you're really lucky you've got two minutes. And there's not a lot that you can say in two minutes. But one of the things that I, because of just how my brain clocks things, is that I know that everything is connected to something. It's n- nothing exists in isolation. But I, I hadn't been able to articulate it up until I read Open City that I was like, right, this is, it starts, it's making sense to me now because I've never been able to go into anything and treat it because I always think context is everything, absolutely, but then I also think how does history feed into this? How does popular culture feed into this? How does, you know, these other intersections feed into this? And then And then going, okay, now how do I frame this for the audience to understand. And sometimes it's very difficult and you have no choice but to just kind of have a collage of all of these. And this is why I love cinema because cinema is allowing me at a particular at this particular point to experiment with that collaging of how do you bring all of these different ideas. I'm obsessed with memory and archive, but fitting it into that very contemporary um, setting 
and hoping that all of those pieces allow audiences to recognise that that moment is not a moment in isolation. There's so many things that are feeding it and there are all these constellations. And that was what I loved about Open... Because it was like, I was like, oh, my God, this is how I think about things all the time. I, I, I'm always thinking about... You know, I mean, you can do it with anything, really. You can, you can, you can, you can, you can buy a cup of coffee, and you can think about the production line of the coffee beans. You can think about the ethics of uh, making the coffee cup itself. You can think about the environmental impact that that has. You can think of, you know, it really, and and that's and that and I and I and I and that's the space I want us to be inhabiting as humans because I feel like it is so limiting when we get very black and white about stuff because life is not black and white, you know. It's very grey and it's complicated for a reason because when you can understand, and, and this is also probably going back to things full of Pardon and Conqueror's character and, and, and building empathy is that recognising that, you know, we don't get to where we get in isolation. There's a series of events that lead us to that point and sometimes they're things that we we have nothing to do with. We've just been born into that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I... I'm fascinated by that because when you enter that space, it's very difficult to one judge. I think you have greater compassion, but then there's also a greater need to kind of go, right, now knowing what we know, how do we ensure that we don't repeat this? Yeah. And I just, and I, and I, 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 I prefer working in that space and I prefer interrogating things through that way, but it requires time. It requires, and it's a challenging it's a challenging thing to bring those ideas, which is why I love Open City, because I think in many ways it was a very ambitious, I don't know if it was his first novel. It was. Very ambitious to kind of go, this is this is what I'm going to do and this is how I'm going to do it. And and I think he just, he pulled it off really, really well. And and he's still been very consistent with that sort of style of writing. And I, and I, and I, lo- I just... You know, one of my favorite filmmakers is a uh, British Nigerian, a British Ghanaian guy, sorry, called uh, Donna Comfra. And he started off making documentaries. Now he kind of works in the art space and he mixes, he plays with the form in a way that, unlike anything, he gets archive, he gets, you know, he gets everything. To really tell a story, and, and I remember seeing uh, a couple of years ago the Ian Potter Museum at the University of Melbourne had one of his works that had been in the um, Biennale, and I think it was called Utopia, and it was making commentary about uh, migration. This was at the this was the height of the migrant crisis in Europe, and displacement of bodies by sea, and it was just and you know there's no there, there was only narration in his films. It's all just visuals and stuff and you got the sense of all the displaced bodies through as far back as the the cinematic language allows us to tell of people that have been displaced and swallowed up by the ocean and this idea that migration is a recent thing when it really isn't and and how people some of them have been forcefully displaced some of them haven't necessarily but the film it 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 does that in a way that but it's so multi-led it's not just one singular image that's telling you that it's so many things that are coming at you all the time and you're like right okay so what happened in the 15th century relates to what happened in 1997 relates to you know and I really really love that space (laughs) it's my favorite place to occupy and I feel like Open City does it so well it's an incredible book I don't know if I've read anything like it 
There was one point I wanted to make, and I wondered if this had occurred to you. You obviously mm. know a lot about Teju's life. No, he, I well, ab- ab- well, no, I, I was obsessed his for a while. Life. I was, I was professional obsessed. life. I was very obsessed for a while. So he was the he's a photographer, and he was the photography critic at the New York, New York Times, Times magazine yeah. for four years. And he's an art historian as well. He's an art historian. Yeah. This book is incredibly visual. It is because Julius is wandering around but he's also describing what he's seeing not just observing people interacting with each other or observing people and making comments on that but he's also describing if he's just walking around talking about people it might not have been that engaging but not only is he describing music in such a visual way he's Mm. describing the The world and the landscape and different countries at different times and I thought he was quite masterful in setting that scene as well and bringing it to life without pages of descriptive about the moors and the, you know, those books that have chapters Mm. about mountains. Like Mm. this was about it was in an urban environment but it was also just bringing it to life. Mm. I'm always curious about how much is Teju, how much is Julius. Yeah. Um, Because all of that is a large part of who, of his body of work is is very much in his observations of streetscapes. Um, I think... His photo book, Blind Spot, um, was made up of photos that he'd taken travelling across various cities in, in around the world and and all the things that he'd be observing. And so when you read the book, I mean, reading the book in hindsight, it's it's kind of it's kind of interesting to kind of it's unsurprising now, but at the time it was, as you say, quite. Um, quite fascinating how how good he was at it but I will tell you I will say one of the things that I didn't quite enjoy about the book and it's a tiny tiny flaw if if you want to call it a flaw but I found that some of the stuff particularly around the music and what was that scene if memory serves me correctly there was a scene with the was it a Chinese Chinese dancers in the park what was it and there was music playing what I do recall was there were moments when he would go off on those tangents and a part of me just felt like it was quite pretentious, <laughs> which was good because I was like, I, I mean, which is interesting because I was like, okay, I get you're showing off now because this is clearly a book for people that think. Like it's not, you know, mm. I mean, Open City is not a kind of book that it, it forces you to to really think it's not it's not yeah. it's not it's not like easy reading kind of thing you know i mean you'll you'd probably spend half the time googling half the things in the book cuz you're going <laughs> i wonder what this is and there was something that was painfully frustrating about that i was like oh gosh but okay it's it served me well in the end because i you know discovered people um like marla and all that sort of stuff but yeah that was probably the the thing that i will say just really kind of i was like uh okay let's not tell our friend. No, we won't. That. No, we But which I understand as well because I'm sort of like if you are, I don't know, maybe, yeah, I, I, I mean I've never written a work of fiction or a book or anything like that. Uh, but I can imagine that if you're really trying to be very impressive, I mean because you, your, your, your peers are going to be critiquing your book and I guess in, to some extent you have to bring some intellectual rigour to it. But, yeah, that was just, yeah. Too much? A little bit. And then there were the, the moments when I would have liked the book to have – stayed with some of those um, moments where he where it would expand on issues to do with migration and things like that. 
he sort of steps back quite quickly. It does, doesn't yeah. he? Yeah. So, yeah, there are moments when you're like... And then you do wonder, like, if he was to revisit it now, what would Open City look like? I, th- I f- almost feel like he would probably push it further now. Yeah. And it was only written eight years ago. Oh, really? It's, yeah, it's a 2011. That's probably when I read it because I yeah. remember... It yeah. would have been brand new. Yeah. Yep. And he was on social media and everything, on Twitter. Speaking of brand new, mm. I'm hurtling us towards your third choice. Could you reveal the title and the author, please? Drum roll. Okay, so the book is called The Old Drift, and the author is Namwali Serpil. Um, I've just started reading this book, Confession. Um, I should explain, actually, the thinking behind the choices, uh, if it isn't already evidently clear. <laughs> so, um, like I said, I don't, I don't read a lot of fiction, um, and yet you chose three books of fiction. I'm really I looking chose, forward to this. I know. Um, but I, one, it's a time thing. Two, it's very rare that I read something beyond nonfiction that really stays with me. And things fall apart, has nostalgia, all those sorts of things. Uh, Open City, like I said, it just opened up ways of thinking seeing for me that I didn't even think were possible um, still gets me very excited. Um, And I was going through my bookshelf and I was trying to find three books because that's what you told me to bring to the island, which is really cruel because seriously, three books. But anyway, here we are. And I um, was going to – there was a book of poetry that I was going to bring, but – I realised as I was going through those books that they're all male writers. And I went, hang on a second. I've read some great books by female writers. And uh, as much as, uh, don't get me wrong, I like Chimamanda and I like um, some of Zadie's work um, and and a whole bunch of other recent or, or sort of, sorry, more contemporary um, writers that identify as being part of the African diaspora, um, and I and I relate to some a lot of those sorts of stories, particularly the ones to do with uh, migration and the fact that generally those protagonists sort of exist between a space between their African ancestral home and whatever Western context they're in, and how they're navigating those sorts of politics, and so I. I was like, yep, that would be, uh, and I would have been spoiled for choice. But none of them really stood out to me. They were they were good, and I enjoyed reading them, but none of them sort of just left a mark. And I'd heard about Namali Seppel, uh many, many years ago. One, because she's like me, Zambian-born. Um, um, but she uh, is, 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 is Zambian. She wrote a I, I found out about her when she won the Kane Prize for one of the short stories many years ago. And I was fascinated by her because, I mean, like I said, I, I was born in Zambia. It's not a small country, but it doesn't really make the news because, you know, it's, 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 it, 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 it's, it's, it's not known to be a, a country that, you know, has conflict and all that sort of stuff. So for those reasons, it generally doesn't make the radar in the West. Um, 
And, you know, we don't, we, 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 we haven't had, uh, outside of the, you know, national soccer team, we haven't had, you know, Zambians that have gone on into the international stage to, like, do interesting things. And so when you hear about another thing, you go, oh, wow, there's, 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 there's someone doing this. And that was what it was like when I heard about Namali. And so I was very fascinated in her. And she wrote about, she wrote a really wonderful uh, New Yorker essay about one of my favorite one of my heroes, rather, a Zambian Afronaut who uh, created a space program because he wanted to beat the Russians and the Americans in the space race in the 60s. Bit of an eccentric guy, very, very fascinating story. And I think she touches on him in The Old Drift or around that space program. She does. And... Um, and I and I really enjoyed her writing, and I and I and I enjoyed those particular essays. And so when I heard that she'd written this book, um, I it was on my list. I was like, I'll get it, but because, like I said, I don't read fiction a lot, it was sort of on a very low list of priorities. But then I had three people on separate occasions say to me, "Oh my God, have you read The Old Drift? It's amazing." And so I ended up getting a copy, and I have to confess I'm not a big fan of sci-fi I'm not a big fan of that 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 genre but this book already despite the fact that I'm one chapter deep <laughs> and I'm calling it the reason why I think I'm very why I want to bring this one on to the desert island with me is I've never read a book uh, by a contemporary writer that happens to be Zambian where the bulk of the story is set in Zambia, different points, um, because it moves between time and space. Um, never read anything like that. Uh, it's never existed in my lifetime. So it's one of those things where uh, I, I don't quite know how to articulate it. It's, it's you know, one of the, the, I mean, when we think about the conversations now around diversity, inclusion, representation and all that, and people talk about, you know, um, you can't be something if you can't see it and all that sort of stuff. And then I think about I think about the 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 canon of literature and I think about what we um what we immortalize in words, you know, that that will outlive us and that a future you know, I mean Chinua Achebe is, is, is long deceased, but we're still talking about his work and we're still talking about his book and we're still trying to fi- find how it still speaks to the contemporary. And I think about I think about the stories that we not just omit, overlook, um, don't think about telling, don't think are worthy of being told, and then the stories that we just keep repeating. And then I wonder what that does to communities, what that does to communities that have lost traditions of oral oral storytelling. And a lot of African communities are very much like uh, First Nations communities here, built on long histories of oral storytelling. And I wonder... What does that look like when you've got identity when you've got identities being built around around stories and trying to remember a part of who you might have been? And yes, a lot of this is very fictionalized, but there's still a there's still a there's still a part of that 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 that, that triggers some kind of memory and that allows allows a starting point of exploration. Um, and I hadn't realized how much I'd wanted something like that until I picked up this book. I hadn't realized how much I'd wanted, I'd wanted to know more about um, my Zambian history, uh, my Zambian history pre the borders being defined in the 60s. Uh, 
um, my Zambian history pre-colonialism, um, my Zambian history um, in 2080. Um, I didn't, I did because there's, there's no, where's the starting point? Mm-hmm. Yep. And you, you don't realise how much you take for granted when you have rich, and this is why power is such a fascinating thing, right, and why certain communities stay powerful and hold on to power and remain powerful. It's the stories that you tell about yourselves and how you convince yourselves that you're more superior and all that sort of stuff and, you know, that your version of storytelling is much, and all these sorts of things. And part of that is because of who gets to tell the stories, when do they get to tell the stories, Um and if you don't have anything that's recorded that at least says that, yes, we were here too, we existed too, and this is some of the – I didn't realise it until this book, and that's why I'm bringing it to the desert island. I'm very glad. Even though I haven't even finished reading it. I haven't finished reading it either, but I'm committed to reading it. Same. I'll probably be done in about a year, but, you know. that's. A, I mean, it's 600 pages, and a couple of things I want to say about it. I mm. also saw – what is it? Describe that sticker on the spine above the author's name. What is that? Uh, Can you see what that is? Is it like a... It's a planet. Is it? Yeah, it's a genre sticker. Oh, you mean there? Yeah, yeah. Where I, thought, I thought you were talking about like this little firefly thing. Oh, nah, just under it's, that. Okay. So that's yeah. a library sticker. Yeah. And it's called a genre sticker. Mm-hmm. And what that does is when you're browsing the shelves, mm-hmm. if you know you like science fiction, you will find books that have planets on them and you will decide, mm-hmm. this is for me. And if you are a bit like me and maybe a bit like you too mm-hmm. and you think, oh, I don't really like science fiction, you might see that planet and think, oh, I'll keep going. And you might see the little Sherlock Holmes cap and say, oh, I love a mystery. I mm. might borrow that one. <laughs> you might see a love heart and go, oh, romance. I feel like a bit of love right now. Yep. I'll borrow that one. Yep. So the genre stickers are there to help you identify because once you've, you know, you're staring at a bookshelf of spines, yep. it can be overwhelming. Yeah. Sometimes the title doesn't grab you. You can't see the cover. So the genre stickers are there to help. It's very clever. They're also there, <laughs> I think, in some ways to bring out our biases Mm -hmm. and um, enable us to make, you know, not the greatest reading choices because we're not really looking to expand what we read. Mm. We're just looking at, oh, well, I know I don't like that, therefore. Mm. And so when this book came in on reservation for me and I had that sticker on the spine, my instant defensiveness, which I'm happy to acknowledge that I have, Mm. was like, oh, sci-fi, how did she choose this? How does this fit with everything else? Mm. I have no idea. I was more curious about how it made the list than my you know, oh, mm. I don't really like that. Um, so I, do- I dove into it and I've read um, the v- very first mm. chapter as mm. well. Um, and yet at the very beginning of the book before it starts, there's a family tree. Mm. And I've read the back and I know that it's three generations mm. of family, separate families who come together eventually through, I think, I'm not sure actually how they intersect. I haven't read it yet. But it's set up this kind of family drama saga. It starts in 1904-ish, I think, and it goes, as you say, into mm. the, you know, the 2020s and beyond. Mm. So I know it's going to, you know, outlive me in mm. some ways. Mm. It's going to bring me things I haven't thought about that are possible. It's got a bit of magic in it. It's got a bit of that kind of magic realism. It's got the space race. It's got, yeah. it starts with the grandmothers. So it starts with yeah. this matriarchy mm. Um and I'm, I'm hooked, I'm invested, mm. I've got to know where this book goes. But isn't it, I mean, hearing you talk, I've just realised that another concept that I hadn't realised in picking out this book, because I picked them because to me I, I, I 
you know, I, I, like I said, I read a lot for work and I, and I read very, very interesting things. And um, there are some books that, you know, you could argue are perhaps, uh, you know, better books or, or, or whatever it is um, than, than the ones that I've brought today. But um, again, it, I think it was important for me to really, when we think about African writers, so-called African literature again, what does that look like? who's writing it, who's telling it. And all of this sits in different places. I mean, you've got someone like Chinua Achebe who um, was very much a Nigerian writer and he wrote from his place in Nigeria. Um, you've got someone like Teju Cole who was born in Nigeria, born in the US rather, moved to Nigeria, moved back to the US, um, lives between these two worlds. And Namali Serpil, who's also in a very similar way. Um, and, you know they all kind of explore these themes of displacement in some shape or form. What I hadn't realised when I was hearing you talk just then, I was like, here's another theme, that multi-layered moving between, I mean, in Teju's context, it's within a year that he's moving um, and thinking about all sorts of things. Sorry, the Julius is rather not Teju, <laughs> that's, mo that's moving as he navigates the city, it's, 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 I think, roughly within a 12-month period. But even then, there is a bit of a movement historically mm -hmm. with, with, with the observations he's making. The old drift, very much, that's the book. It, it, it moves between time and space. But things fall apart because of what you'd said to me, because I didn't know that it was part of a series. There's clearly a need to sort of explore what that looks like within. And I'm like, of course it now makes sense that I would be drawn to these sorts of things. <laughs> Even though it feels like an oddly weird book therapy session. <laughs> Anytime. Where I've sort of unpacked all of this and now I'm like, oh. There usually is a connecting thread, even if the books are... You know, I've had someone pick fiction, nonfiction and poetry because they just want to sort of represent the diversity of their reading mm. and books that were important to them at different stages of their lives. But there is always something that ties the books together. Mm. As readers, there's a comfort zone in reading and mm. there are things that we like to read. And, you know, I told you about my genre sticker bias. Yeah. Um, and so my... Desert Island books maybe would would also have a theme, whether it's, you know, genre or time or kind of they I progress come, I through my do life. That one. I want to do your Desert Island. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a different podcast, but we should totally do that. But w the thing that I've, yeah, the thing that I've realised is that, uh, which, again, doesn't surprise me, is how all of these books are complicated. They're, oh, not, yeah. they're not easy reads. Not, not and I, I can't think of... They're not the kinds of books that you sort of like open up and you're like, you'll get completely lost in and you will. I mean, I recently read, speaking of fiction, actually, it was the most recent fiction book that I read, but I read um, My Sister the Serial Killer. Yep. I and loved I read that, that in, book. And I read it in a day. Yep. You know, and it's one of those books that you can just like, you know, it just, it just sweeps you in and you just, you just go. Yep. Because it's almost partly like a, it reads like a novella of sorts, but um. I, but these three aren't, they're not like that. They're not like that. Like you probably would spend, I know that with Open City, you'd probably be scratching your head the first, the first couple of pages going, what's actually going on? Are we going for a walk? Okay. Yeah, going, yeah. Where are we going? Where what are, are we going? looking at? Exactly. What we, like What music are we listening mm. to in our head? It's not even headphones. It's just mm. music that he has this incredible ability to recall. 
Julius is an incredible character, but he's really enjoyable to spend time with. In Things Fall Apart, characters are a little less enjoyable to spend mm. time with. They're a bit mm. more complicated. And The Old Drift, I have no idea about these nine people, but I want I want to spend time with them. And it's not even that. It's clearly the people that have written these books have done their research as well. Oh, yeah. So these are heavily researched books, oh, bits yeah. of fiction. Yep. So part of the joy for me of reading books like this, because maybe it's just a carryover from the fact that I read a lot, a lot of nonfiction, is that I spend a lot of the time, I mean, one of the beauties about reading The Old Drift is because a lot of the, there are lots of words in like Indigenous Zambian languages that I speak and it's been really quite fun knowing that I don't have to Google that to understand it. Like I'm like, yep, I get what this means. And and there's been fun in that. But I do remember early on when I'd read um, Things Fall Apart, there were things that I needed to understand just because because of the cultural context and because of the language that was used. There were things that were just like, I'm not quite sure what this means. Um, and equally with Open City, because of all the political, social, cultural issues that are sort of explored through Julius's perspective, you're, you're left to sort of think a little bit more deeply about those sorts of things. And the places where you have gaps, you're forced to sort of try and fill in those gaps after reading the book. Um, and I enjoy reading books that are a bit of a challenge in that sense, which is it's unsurprising now when I think about it. But yeah didn't realise that that was a theme. I like that there as a go. theme. Books that books that are different to things that you've read before but books that challenge you and books that draw you in, that when you finish you feel rewarded. Mm. There's, I mean, we need palate cleansers. You need to Absolutely. just speed through something and you read it and you finish it and you're like, oh, that was great, yeah. and you'll never remember it. Mm. But these are the books that you remember. These are the ones you want to revisit again, mm. that you want with you on your desert island, if we're going to mm. take the metaphor to the, to yeah. the end of it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm already it's, sitting here with my cocktail. Right? <laughs> it's refreshing. in a coconut, right? So we're, we're absolutely... Very refreshing. Don't know how I was able to bring in the rum, but here we are. That's okay. We have very lax laws on this particular <laughs> island. In fact, um, to... Um, to make you feel a little bit better, you've got access to all the books that everyone else has chosen for their desert island. Oh, amazing. Yeah, so you, like you, you build, we're building a library here. Amazing. And you can come and go as you please. Oh, cool. Um, thank you so much for your choices and for your time and yeah. for chatting to me today. Thank you on so much island. for having me. It's been really, really, really fun. I didn't think I would ever enjoy talking about books so much. Um, I love the books. I think everyone should read them. <laughs> Thank you for choosing the books. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. You can read this episode's show notes, including a list of all of the books that we have discussed on our Goodreads page, which you can find on our website at www.melbournelibraryservice.com.au. Just look for the read page. I'd also love to hear about your Desert Island books. What are you taking with you? Tweet at Melbourne Library with the hashtag Desert Island Books and let me know those books that you simply cannot live without. You can download previous Desert Island Books episodes in your favourite podcasting app at SoundCloud or iTunes. Simply search for Melbourne Library Service. Happy reading!